Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. And today Jason is in part 10 of his walk through the book of Acts, looking at the fourth part of Peter's powerful sermon. Let's join Jason now in his sermon. Let us get back to the book of Acts, where we get to see Jesus at work. Thank you, Pastor Lou, last week for, for, for bringing the word and reminding us of sanctification and, 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 and what's involved in sanctification, because we're, we're going to see, you know what, Peter is different than he was before. And I've already made mention of that, and, and some of that definitely has to do with sanctification, right? Peter is being changed. God wants us to be changed. He wants to conform us more and more into the image of, of His Son. And you know what? Even though we are not involved in salvation, that is wholly, entirely of God, the reality is with sanctification, you and I are involved. It's not something that we are passive in, but it's something that we are active in. That we are pressing forward. And that it is Christ in us, but that doesn't mean that we are not involved in the process. And as Pastor Lou said last week as well, there is no sanctification vacation, right? This is something that we continue to do over and over again. And we're going to see that where Peter is going here, I believe it speaks to the fact that God is continuing to work in Peter's life. So turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Verses 33 to 38, and, and, and really that I didn't know was going to be a mini-series, but it's actually turned out to be a bit of a mini-series, entitled Peter's Powerful Preaching, Part 1, Part 2, Part 3, Part 4, and next week we will finish this up, Lord willing. <laughs> Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Christ Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray now that You would speak to us through Your Word, that You would remind us of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those that do not know You as their Lord and Savior, Lord, that You would bring them to repentance this morning. For it's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So last week, what, or two weeks ago, what we saw was what, what I said really is, is a comparison between David and Jesus. 
And what we saw was that, that David was lacking, right? That Jesus was far greater. And He was greater first, we, we saw, in His death. Why? Because death conquered David. Whereas Jesus conquered death. And then it wasn't just in His death, but it was actually in His grave. Why? Because David's grave is just the same today as it was back when they originally put him in it. Whereas Jesus' grave, what? The, the stone was rolled away. It, is, it was different because he rose from the dead. And then, and then finally, we, we saw as well that, that David's flesh decayed. Whereas Jesus' flesh did not decay because he rose from the dead. And today what, what we're going to see is, is, is Peter taking everything now and drawing it to a conclusion. He's going to bring, bring his hearers to a conclusion. Then he's going to call them to a particular action. And then we're, we're, we're going to see a, a response to everything that, that Peter has preached. And, and next week we'll see the result. We'll see what happens as a result of all of this. Which is it's going to be... a I mean, I'm excited about, to, about this sermon, but I, I'm, I'm real excited about next week as well. Because we know how this ends, right? So let, let's see first what, what Peter means by this conclusion seen in, in verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So, so what's Peter's conclusion? It's that Jesus is Lord, David is not. That, that's where all of the comparison was going, and that is where he's going to continue to go now, and he's going to streamline it more and more, get it more and more pointed, in order to finally get to the point to where he'll hopefully bring out some sort of conviction, some sort of response. Any good preacher, any good teacher, you, you're going somewhere. You, you want there to be a reaction, an, an action that follows whatever is preached. And that is exactly where Peter goes. But what we see first is, is really three points that, that he's pointing back to Jesus. The first point is that Jesus, he, he wasn't just resurrected, he was exalted to the right hand of God. The second, that Jesus received from, from the Father this promise of the Holy Spirit. And third, as a result of receiving this promise, he then goes and he pours forth the Spirit, which it says they, they, they are seeing and they are hearing. And notice what it says, "...in having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you, which you now both see and hear." He, he's pulling everything back to the present. Remember, he was using the word the last time we were together. He used Joel earlier, and then he used Psalm 16. And what was he doing? He's proving that this Messiah, that this Christ, actually is the one whom they crucified. And no doubt when he's talking about this idea of that this promise of the Holy Spirit was given to Christ... He's referring back to Acts 2.17, which said that, that, that God, was going to, God the Father was going to be the one that poured forth the Spirit. But in all actuality, what do we see? We see that it was Jesus that poured forth the Spirit. 
And, and remember at the beginning I said that, that I believe that a better title for the book of Acts rather than the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit is, is really the Acts of Christ. Why? Because He is involved. And, and we see that here. Even in the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit, He's letting them know everything that you... In the Greek, this is the present tense, which means what you are seeing and what you are hearing is a direct, direct result of Jesus pouring forth this Spirit. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it's not based upon what you feel. Right? He, he says this is, honestly, this is based upon what you have heard. This is based upon the preaching, which then goes back to this is based upon God's Word. And that's where God wants us to land. Ultimately, Peter is pointing them to, to God's Word, not their feelings. And not some experience that they had. Why? Because those feelings and that experience can weigh, they can, they can disappear. And then, and then what are you left with? You're not left with a solid faith. You're left with something that, that goes up and down depending on how you feel instead of depending upon what God's Word says. But it's not only the Scripture that Peter is using to show that Jesus is definitely the Messiah. But look at what he does next. He actually says that David himself gave testimony to this. Look at verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven. Again, kind of going back to, to this comparison. So David didn't do this. This is who? But he himself, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he's giving us the reason for why Jesus was exalted why He ascended to the right hand, why He was able to pour forth this Spirit is because He's greater than David. In fact, He is the Savior. He is indeed God. And David himself saw this. David saw that that this coming Messiah, this coming Lord was going to be God. And that's why he says, the Lord said to my Lord, that may seem confusing. In, in the Greek, those are the same words. Lord and Lord. That's why it was translated the same. It, it, it's, this, it's this Greek word, kurios, which is Yahweh in the Old Testament. And, and of course, this has major, major significance to his hearers. When you say, oh my, you know what? David got this. David understood that the Lord, the Messiah that was to come, was indeed, is going to be Yahweh. They would understand. It, this is the designation of God. This was His personal name. That He was indeed the ruler. He is the one who commands. It, it, it's, it's like a combination of, of might and right. That He has the power on the one hand, but He also has the authority on the other hand as the ruler, as the owner, as the creator to deem everything the way that He deems it. So what this verse is doing is this is equating Jesus with being God with the Messiah being God. And we see this oh so profoundly and powerfully stated in, in the fact that he says, what? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We, we've already looked at this at, at the throne, but just think of the fact of the place that this is a place of glory. This is a place of honor. But even more than that, I don't think... At least I fully grasp this. The significance of sitting in the presence of God. They would have grasped this. Why? Because 
they were Jewish and they understood back from the Old Testament times what happens when you come into the presence of God. Once a year, when the high priest came, do you, do you know how he had to come into the Holy of Holies? That They had to tie a rope around him with a bell. Because if they didn't hear the bell jingling, you know what happened to, the, to that guy? He was dead. And they had to pull him out. Why? Because that's how God's presence deals with sin. You can't come into God's presence with sin. So who on earth can actually come into the Lord's presence? No one except God. And that's what this is communicating. This would have been staggering, much more staggering to them than I think it is to you and I. That this Messiah, this Christ, was going to be able to actually sit in the Lord's presence. Which is what we just sang about. I have a question for you, though. When did Jesus become Lord? Was it when He was resurrected? Don't answer that one quickly if you're going to say yes. No, He's always been Lord. It wasn't that He became Lord. He's always been Lord. But it was shown to be the case with His ascension that He was indeed Lord. But look at this. It not only shows us that He has been shown to be the Lord, but it shows what this Lord will do in the future. And I believe this starts to get more and more scary for those that were listening. Because look at what it says in verse 35. So the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh is going to say to the coming Messiah, the coming Savior, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's literally to make someone a footstool for someone. To subject one person under another so that the one can actually put a foot on the subject's neck. It's what you would do if you conquered another nation. And that's what you do with the king in order to show that you were above him. Obviously, the significance is that, that one day all of Christ's enemies are going to be placed under Him. They're going to bow before Him. And no doubt the significance of this would start to press upon His hearers. And so then what, what does He do next? What does Peter do? He, he goes right in to calling them to, to action. As seen in, in verse 36. So he says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This, this is His call to action. That, that you were to what? First, all of Israel, all of you that are listening, you were to know that, you can't get this in the English, but this is a command. You don't get a choice in the matter. You need to recognize, you need to understand, but it's not just understand with with some sort of mental capacity alone, but it's a personal, intimate knowledge of what he is saying. As in, this is something personal that you need to do. You need to know this. And what that what? That that God has made that that verb brings out the idea that that God has established or brought something by his own action. That that God alone is the one that is has designated Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That this has God's fingerprints all over it. 
And how do you know that? Because He has made Him. And then He gives these two significant titles to Christ. The first one is Lord. It's what we already looked at. The quotation from Psalm 110.1. This is is the title referring to, to the Old Testament's usage of Yahweh. In essence, what He's saying is that Jesus is the Lord of salvation. That He is indeed equal to God. But He he doesn't just say that. Look, look, look at what He says next. So, so on the one hand, He's Lord, but He's also Christ. And in the book of, of Luke and in the book of Acts, this is the title that Luke likes to use when referring to Jesus. And, and so as a result, I, I don't have time to go into all this. Hopefully this is helpful. That, that this gives you all the cross-references of the time that Luke actually refers to Jesus as Jesus Christ, meaning the Messiah. Starting in Luke and all the way, almost in every chapter in Acts. These are just the chapters. And, and you can go back and search them and find, man, wh- when does Luke actually come out and say that Jesus is the Christ, right? Right from the beginning, Luke 2. Luke 3, Luke 4, Luke 9, Luke 20, Luke 22, Luke 23, Luke 24. And and if that wasn't enough, look at all the occurrences in Acts. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, 11, 15, 16, 17, 18, 24, 26, 28. What is the point? The point is that you and I would not miss it. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And whenever the Gospel is preached, that's where they go. And so that's why we see it over and over again. But recognize too that it's not just some lofty thing that you're just supposed to, oh yes, let's meditate on it. No, you're supposed to actually understand personally. Because look at where He drives in. He he drives into them. And and it's almost like He's taking a, a nail into their hearts. And He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. Recognize the difference between the earthly leaders of the Jewish nation and what they had presented Jesus to be and what God the Father has presented Jesus to be. Entirely different. The the Jewish nation, the leaders, they represented Jesus as, as anything but the Messiah. God the Father, on the other hand, proves that He was the Messiah. In numerous ways. First, by raising Him from the dead ascending Him to the right hand, or ascending Him to heaven, putting Him in the right hand, and then giving Him the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the proof that Jesus was indeed reigning is what they are seeing portrayed before them, before their very eyes, with the coming of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus whom you crucified is the one who brought deliverance. And so, he's wrapped up his conclusion and, and basically, what is he leaving them with? He's leaving them with, well, okay, um, what, do we, what do we do? What, what should happen? And look at what they say. First, we're going to see their response and then we're going to see Peter's response to their response. Verse 37 Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? So so their initial response is, what shall we do? 
It says they were pierced. We, we have a very similar phrase in, in, in the tribal language that we worked with, that, that Holy Spirit shoots arrows into your heart. That, that's what this is. It's to pierce, it's to stab, it's to, to be so deeply moved that you're troubled. It's to prick violently. It's to stun. And, and it also carries the meaning of happen, su- happening suddenly, suddenly and unexpectedly. No doubt that, that they were concerned as to what the future would be like. Why do they say, what shall we do? In the Greek, this what shall we do actually is, is kind of nuanced with this idea of uncertainty, of potential. It's, it's better translated, what might we do? Because we're not really certain exactly how this is all going to pan out in the end. Because think about these three things. This is what they must have been thinking this. First, they're thinking, okay, we missed the Messiah, right? But on top of that, second, they're thinking, not only do we miss the Messiah, we actually killed the Messiah. And then third, Peter just made it clear to us that this Messiah is actually going to rule over his enemies. And then aren't we his enemies because we killed him Therefore, what's going to happen to us? Oh my, you must be kidding. He's going to crush us. Praise the Lord that God is so slow to anger and abounding in love. Amen? That instead of just saying, and that's it, and Peter closes things, closes up the scroll, whatever, and walks away, he's not done. Right? He answers them and and, and is so gracious. So let's see what Peter's response is. In verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. This is a command. This was non-negotiable. This is what they had to do if they were going to respond the way that God wanted them to respond. This is to change one's way. In, in English, oftentimes when, when we think of repentance, we think of sorrow, we think of some contrition, you're feeling bad or sad over maybe some sin that you did or something that happened or this or that. In Greek, the emphasis is much greater than that. It, 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 it's much more encompassing. It, it brings about the idea of a total change, not just in thought, but in behavior as well. With respect to how one should think and act to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. You know, oftentimes in Scripture we we can see either believe or we see repent or sometimes we see believe and repent. It's not one or the other. I believe it's a both and. I believe that they're two sides to the same coin. That when we talk about repentance, it's, it's including belief. And when Jesus starts off his, his ministry in Mark 1, 14 to 15, do you know what he preaches? He preaches believe and repent. Believe this and repent of what you're doing. Because I don't believe one can exist without the other. It, it seems that when, when Scripture is speaking of one of these, both are, are actually in focus. And later we're going to get to Acts 16 and I can't wait to get to it. It's such a cool chapter. 
But we're going to see that, that, that Peter, or, sorry, Paul and Silas are put in prison. And then miraculously, remember what happens? Their, their chains are, are gone. The jailer thinks that they're gone. He's ready to kill himself. And, and Paul says, wait, 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 no. We're still here. And then the, the jailer is so overcome. What does he do? He asks them the same question that we see here. What do we, what should we do? What should I do to be saved? And, and instead of saying repent, Paul says, actually Paul and Silas believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. So wait, so, so is the gospel that Peter preaches here in, in Acts 2 different than what Paul preaches? And, and Pastor Jason, how should I preach? Hey, you can preach Believe or you can preach repentance. They're, they're one of the same. They're not different. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. I, I believe what, what, what we see is actually a repentant faith. That that's the kind of faith that we see in Scripture. That, that it's got, like the, the negative side of the coin would be the repentant side of, of turning from your sin. The positive side, or the tails, or I don't know how you want to look at it, of, of faith would be the believing in God, trusting Him, turning towards Him. So I, I don't believe you can separate the two. True saving faith is always a repentant kind of faith. A faith which turns from self and self-righteousness and sin. We see this in, in, in Scripture, that we know that, that faith is the only condition for someone being justified or someone being saved. Sinners are, are, are said to be justified by faith in Romans 3.28, through faith in Galatians 2.16, and on the basis of faith in Philippians 3.9. If, if we were to look at the Old Testament, we'd see the, we'd see the same thing, that repentance isn't something new. That the most common Hebrew word used for, for repentance has, has this idea of turning from evil towards good. Just what we what we see in the Greek. But what about Jesus? Pastor Jason, are you sure that, that, that repentance isn't just something that, that Peter says here? No, Jesus preached repentance actually before he called his disciples to himself. Early on in, in the beginning, in Matthew four seventeen, but then he continues to preach repentance. So much so that he, that he trains his, his apostles. And, and, and so it's not surprising to see that that's exactly what Peter does. When he's given this opportunity to preach, what does he do? He, he talks about repentance. He preaches repentance. Commands it. And you know what? This isn't the first time we're going to see, the only time we're going to see Peter preach repentance. When, when, when we get to chapter 3, which we will, <laughs> when we get to chapter 3 and we see Peter's second sermon... He's again going to preach repentance. But what do we do with sorrow? Does sorrow play a place? And, and I think it's good for us to understand that when the Bible talks about sorrow, there's, there's basically two kinds of sorrow. You, you have a, a, a godly sorrow that brings about repentance, a repentant faith, and then you have a worldly sorrow. And do you know what the worldly sorrow brings? It brings death. That's what Scripture says. And I, and I think the prime example, well, there's two good examples. But the first example we can all think about is Judas Iscariot. Was he sorry? Was he, did he have sorrow over what happened? Yeah. 
He had sorrow, so he wanted to get rid of the coins that he had gotten. Right? The silver. But did that sorrow lead to repentance? Did he change in the way that he was thinking about what he had done? Go to the apostles? No. Instead, he, he goes and he, and he hangs himself. Okay, how about the rich young ruler? Do you, do you remember what, what Jesus says to him? Man, he's following along. It's looking like he's just going to become a disciple. And he's truly going to repent. And he's even sorry at the end of that encounter with Jesus. Do you remember why he's sorry? Because Jesus says, okay, that's great. Now, give everything that you own to the poor and come follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. Why? Because he wouldn't do it. Because he hadn't truly repented. He wasn't willing to. Listen, many people dread the consequences of sin. But only those who are truly repentant dread sin itself. Did you see the nuance between the difference of those things? I'll say it again because it has been with me all week long. And I think it's a good thing to consider. Many people dread the consequences of sin, but only those who are truly repentant Dread sin itself. Why? Because they're looking at it the way that God looks at it. Oftentimes, I, I don't think we, we consider sin that weighty of a thing. We think about the consequences of the sin, and that's weighty. And at times, we actually would say, you know what? It, it's worth the moment of pleasure right now for the consequences of that sin. Why? Because we're not looking at it the way that God does. We're not being truly repentant in dealing with that sin. And so, so we see that repentance is important. We see that, that, that in Scripture, and we're going to see this in Acts, that, that repentance is, is shown as turning from evil from that to what is good, God. We're going to see that it's a divine gift. We're going to see that its, it's basis is, is Christ's saving work in, in chapter 5. We're going to see that the Spirit brings it about in chapter 11. And finally, right now, we, we actually see that it's, that it's somehow connected with baptism. Right? This is what Peter says. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So somehow it, it has something to do with baptism. And, and what, is, what is baptism? What, what, what does he mean baptizes? Well, first he means this is a command as well. This isn't negotiable. This is something that you have to do, according to Peter. Literally, it's to immerse, to make fully wet, to dip under, to sink. Literally, it's, it's, it's dipping a, a fabric into dye or immersing a, a person in water. And, and we, as, as being a Baptist church, this is what we would ascribe to. Why? Because full immersion is the thing that pictures salvation the best. Because when somebody is, is placed under the water, that is to represent what? Their death. That they have indeed died. And then, then when somebody is brought out from the water, what does that represent? That they have now been born again, brought into a new life, which is what happens at salvation. So, so water baptism is a, is a beautiful picture, a representation, a symbol of an internal reality of salvation. It's a picture of that inward reality. 
But it's also meant to be something tied in with the local church. Something that happens in the confines of the local church. That as it happens, it's something that we rejoice in and that we identify, yes, this is another brother or another sister in Christ. That we are now going to wrap arms around and love on. That we are going to hold accountable, right? And all of those things, as well as allowing them to know, yes, you are a brother and sister in Christ. And maybe it actually points back to to what we've already seen on on this day of Pentecost. Giving them a physical representation of, okay, yes, this person says that they believe. But what do you do with with this phrase? And maybe you've never thought about this and and I'm going to rock your world right now. Perhaps. Repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So, does baptism bring forgiveness of sins? That certainly seems what it, like what it says. And do you know that there are lots of people who believe that baptism is what saves you and that if you are not baptized, you cannot be saved? And they come to this passage of Scripture and they say that is the reason why we baptize infants. That is the reason why everybody must be baptized. But is this what that means? Is it essential for salvation? And I would say no. Why? Because of what the totality of Scripture teaches. Because what do we see in Scripture over and over again? We see that justification comes through faith alone. And I, I know this is going to be hard to see, but I wanted to give you guys... A, and this is, this is just a little bit of them. There are literally more and more and more scriptures that support this to show you and I that justification comes through faith alone. John 1.12, John 3.16, John 3.36, Acts 16.31, Romans 3.21-30. I mean, Romans has big discourses about it, lots of verses that are all pointing to the same direction saying, it's not by anything that you do. And if you add baptism to the equation, you are adding works. Romans 10, 9 to 10, 11, 6, Galatians 2, 16, Galatians 3, 8 to 9, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Philippians 3, 9. It's bad Bible interpretation, bad hermeneutics, bad exegesis to take one verse of Scripture that goes contrary and opposite to, to so much of the rest of Scripture and build everything upon that. But is there more in this text that would tell us exactly how we should read this and interpret this? Yes, there is. And this word for, this preposition for, that you see here, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Do you know that that word for actually can be translated several different ways? It's not always for. It can be on account of. It can be because of. In fact, when Jesus is preaching on the Ninevites in Matthew 12, 41, the same phrase, the same preposition in the Greek is there. And did you know how it's translated there? It says that the Ninevites repented because of Jonah's preaching. So when Peter said, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the word for should rightly have been translated because of or on account of. What Peter was calling for here in water baptism was to be performed because of the remission of sins. Because of the forgiveness of sins. On account of your sins being forgiven, now be baptized. It's 
conditional based upon repentance happening first. And this is what we see and what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Do you know what comes first? The chicken or the egg? No, I'm just kidding. What comes first? Baptism or salvation? Salvation comes first and then baptism. And that's what we're going to see. Okay, if I haven't convinced you yet, I'm just getting going. If we were to look into the Greek, and okay, I'm going to get kind of Greek geeky now, but but follow me. This, This is awesome. I think this is awesome. So as you look at these verbs, there are two verbs here. One is repent, one is baptize. As I said, they're both commands, meaning you have to get this done. But what we don't see in the English is the repent is a command made in the plural, meaning more than one person. All of you that are listening, if you're going to respond correctly, repent, all of you. When he comes to the baptized part, guess what that is? Singular. Meaning, you repent. You be baptized after you repent. (laughs) Something didn't sound right with that. I could blame it on the daddy-daughter thing, but I won't. (laughs) So do you see what he's getting at? He's giving us a condition and saying, in order for you to be baptized, first, this has to happen. Why? Otherwise, it's just water. It's not going to save you. At all. Okay, if, if, if that's not convincing enough, if the verbs don't convince you, the nouns should. Because when it says the forgiveness of your sins, guess what the your points to? If it's singular, it's pointing to baptism. If it's plural, it's pointing to repentance. It's plural. It's, rep- it's pointing to repent. That those of you who have repented, your sins are forgiven. Now on the basis of that, be baptized. You following me? Man, isn't God's Word awesome? That He lets that be known to us. And that the way that they translate it was, well, just a wee bit off. Notice too what it says. In the name of Jesus Christ. We need to understand how significant this is. Because for the Jews, basically what Peter's doing, he's making accepting Christ incredibly difficult. Because if you were going to say, yes, I'm baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, what you're doing is, is you're basically signing off your, your own death warrant. They're, they're going to kick you out of the nation. You're, you're, you're going to lose your national heritage. You're going to be risk being an outcast. I don't think we get this. In, in Papua New Guinea, and, and I, I'm already over time, but that's okay. In Papua New Guinea, we, we had some friends that, that when, when they preached the gospel, there had been a strong Catholic influence in this, in this village for years and years and years. So everybody had already been baptized. And they had been told, you never can be baptized again. Well, these guys got saved. And now they wanted to be baptized. So it comes time for them to be baptized. And do you know what happens? All of these other guys that are not saved, they line up on the bank with bows and arrows. Oh yeah, you really going to do this? Are you really going to stand forward and, 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 and show this kind of declaration? Man, if that was the case, how many baptisms would we have here at RBC? <laughs> I, I say all that not to make this funny, but to show the significance of what was behind this. And, and, and for us to understand how important baptism is, but it's important after salvation. So, so please don't miss the point that this is God's word declaring to us that you need to be baptized. Rightfully so. 
but only if you have trusted in Christ as your Savior. So what have we seen in conclusion? We've seen Jesus is Lord, David's not. We've seen a call to action. Know that Jesus, whom you crucified, is indeed Lord. And finally, the response. What shall we do? You should, be, you should repent and be baptized. And, and let me give us these, these points to ponder. To take with you this week. Consider this idea of being pierced to the heart. When was the last time you were convicted of sin to such an extent that it gripped your heart, that it pierced your heart? Ask the Holy Spirit to pierce your heart this week over your sin, that you would see it the way that God sees it. Second, consider repentance. Turning from God to... Turning from sin to God. Consider that this week. And, and, and possibly there's someone here who has never actually done that for the first time. For salvation. That you have never, ever understood exactly what it means. And, and, and this morning, God's made it clear. Praise the Lord. You can come and talk to, to one of us after the sermon. Finally, consider believers' baptism this week. And this might get a little bit pointed. Have you been obedient to, to Christ's command to be baptized? If not, Why? And what is holding you back? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank You that, uh, that I am not the Holy Spirit, but that You have sent Him. I thank You so much that I, I don't have to depend upon my ability to communicate, but upon Your Holy Spirit and the power of Your Word. Lord, we pray that You would use Your Word in all of our hearts. Lord, I'm not speaking to, I'm speaking to myself. Allow me to be convicted of the sin that I commit. And allow me to turn to you in repentance. And may that be the same for all of us as we go from here. And for those that have not stepped forward in baptism, in obedience, would you go before those in helping them to understand? what you want them to do. For it's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951 956-2911 or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org that's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him